I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms and Psalm 114. Book of Psalms, Psalm 114. This is a psalm that <clears throat> ministered to my heart a few weeks ago, and I have uh, shared it with a few friends. And I want to share it with you this morning as we begin this new year. I think it is a psalm of great hope and of great challenge. It is a psalm that I hope will encourage you and call you to greater depths of obedience to the Lord. It's a historical psalm. Uh, most of the psalms in the teens are called Hallel Psalms, which is psalms of praise. Psalms that reflect on the work of God. These are songs that Israel would sing as they would go into God's presence at the temple. Verse 1. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams and the hills like lambs. Why was it, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams, you hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock <clears throat> into a pool, hard rock into springs of water. New Year is a time for many of us of reflection, and it is a time of new beginnings. I think most of us are probably glad for new beginnings, because most of us, as we look back over previous years, we tend to see our failures much more than we tend to see successes. It's just the way that we tend to view life. We tend to be a bit pessimistic about things. And this is a psalm <clears throat> that calls us to look back to the work of God. Certainly, as you think about the nation of Israel as, as a, an entirety of their existence, most of us, I think, are prone to remember their failures, Right? Very easy to look at the nation of Israel, very easy to look at the kings of Israel, judges of Israel, and see the weaknesses that were present. This is a psalm that calls us to look back in the history of the nation of Israel and to see the power of God. And as we begin this new year, I think it is important for us to contemplate the changes that might come, the changes that we hope will come, changes that we would like to see, or that we would like to see, but believe are unlikely and or impossible. Circumstances can haunt us. And this psalm calls us to look back at the work of God in the past so that as we look forward, we look in light of the presence and power of God in our lives. And so God recorded this in inspired scripture so that Israel would sing about God's primary work of deliverance and then evidences of his power after that work of deliverance. And that's basically what this psalm does. It starts in verse 1 by saying, when Israel came out of Egypt. That is to give us a chronological marker historically in this nation's history. Okay, they would look back to the time when they came out of Egypt. A whole book in the Old Testament is recorded that describes that event. It's called the book of Exodus. So in one phrase, the psalm writer has captured a major portion of Israel's history. He wants them to think back in this psalm of praise and reflect upon what God did when Israel was drawn out of a place of captivity, of enslavement. That's what it was in Egypt. It was called the furnace of Israel's affliction. 
And so this is a psalm that pictures first in verse 1, the great deliverance of God, of Israel, from the place of suffering. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, and Israel became his dominion. So at first, verse 1, picture of great deliverance, whole theme of Exodus, how Bondage can be broken and how freedom can be brought into the life of people by the power of God. No human being would ever look back at the Exodus and take personal credit for what had happened. Certainly not Moses. Moses resisted God. When God called him to go and to bring Israel out of Egypt, what did he say? Who am I? I can't talk. What if Pharaoh won't listen? Right? There were the three responses that, that Moses gave to God. He felt completely inadequate. And what did God finally say to him? He said, I will be with you. My personal presence will accompany you as you go to do this great work. And as we look back on this very simple verse, we just see that it recaptures the deliverance of Israel from the power of Egypt, which in the minds of the man who was called to do it, to lead that deliverance, was thought to be utterly impossible. Okay, it caused Moses to quake with such fear that he resisted the call of God, called for evidences from God, stuck his feet in the ground and fought the call. But we know that through Moses, a great deliverance came. So verse 1 shows us this. God exerts his power to deliver his people, to bring them out of circumstances that they think are insurmountable or or are unconquerable. The result of that deliverance is what? Judah becomes his sanctuary, Israel his dominion, okay? So he uses two words or titles to describe the nation as a whole. Israel meaning the description description of the whole nation. Judah, the chief tribe of Israel, as a representative of the people of God. Okay, so what happens? Judah, he says, becomes God's sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? In the Old Testament, a sanctuary was like a home. It was a dwelling place. In the context of religious worship, it was a temple, a tabernacle, a a place where God would visit his people. What is he saying? Judah became his sanctuary and Israel became his dominion, his sphere of influence on planet earth. The place where God would manifest his love and power to a people that he had chose to come near to him. That's the picture of salvation. God's drawing power through his love that brings people out of darkness, out of slavery, and into a beautiful relationship with God. So verse 2, in a sense, tells us, why did God deliver Israel from Egypt? Was it because they were such a wonderful people? And they they would be so compliant and so prone to follow? Well, the answer is, no, that's not the case. What God desired was a people that he could love, pour his affection on, give leadership and guidance to, and call them his own. Objects of his affection, where his rule would be rightfully expressed. Lesson, God desires a personal relationship with us. He doesn't bring Israel out just as a raw description or or raw illustration of his power to say, yep, that's what I could do. It's not what he does. He draws us out because he wants a personal relationship. And that's what he does with the nation of Israel. Now, verse 3 is fascinating. Because what it does is it captures two events. One is immediately at the Exodus. Israel comes out and very soon in the book of Exodus you find them coming to do something called the Red Sea. That Red Sea to them appears to be a sign of death. 
They say to Moses, why did you bring us out here so the Pharaoh would come out of Egypt now and kill us with his chariots and destroy us? And what does God say to Israel through Moses? He says to Israel through Moses, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And he says, Moses, I want you to go and stand by the Red Sea. That rod that you laid down before Pharaoh, that rod with which you exercised all of my miraculous powers before Pharaoh, stretch that out over the Red Sea and see what? The salvation of the Lord. What? That God can deliver his people and can continue to deliver his people from trials. Okay, and so they stand there. God says, Moses, go do this. Hold your rod out over the Red Sea. And you can imagine Moses is thinking, what? What? And what does Moses do? He obeys the word of God, extends the rod out over the sea, which seems to him in, 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 in visible terms, visible terms, a very foolish act. But as he does it, what happens? The Red Sea dries up and flees away. Notice how the, how the psalmist captures it. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. What happens there? You've gone from an event 40 years previous to an event 40 years later. Okay? Coming out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea. After they're done wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, they come to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River presents another obstacle. Okay? One deliverance is into the new life. Another deliverance is into life everlasting as the picture of Canaan becomes. A place where Christians live out the victorious life in the power of God. So in one verse, I capture 40 years of the history of the nation of Israel. Okay? And in this text, what do you find? You find physical elements responding to the presence and power of God as it is mediated through a man named Moses. So 40 years of, of history are compressed into two dramatic events and then in another event that's found in verse 8. Verse 8, it says this. He turned rocks into pools of water, hard rock into springs of water. Okay, so what do you have? You have two events that put parentheses around the Exodus event leading to the land of conquest and promise. In the middle of that 40 years, what do you find? A miraculous demonstration of the power and provision of God for his people. Okay, so that's, in a sense, what's captured at first in this psalm. The Red Sea, soon after the Exodus, panic, deliverance. The Red Sea, one translation says, saw them coming and hurried out of their way, astonished and fleeing in dismay. Okay, that is to be a powerful picture. The obstacle sees them coming. The evident presence of God is in the, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. It is the very presence of God that causes the sea to flee. That's the way the writers of Scripture see the power of God working in the life of his people in their deliverance. The Jordan, it says in verse, <clears throat> verse 3, it turned back. It went contrary to nature. It went uphill. The word carries the idea of the Jordan retreated. So the obstacle that they faced, it, it started to move away from that. What's the connection? The connection is found between the beginning of God's work in your life and the end of God's work in your life. He begins the Exodus event. When they face obstacles, what do they believe? They believe that God has abandoned them. 
And what does God do? God evidences his power, his power for the nation of Israel in repeated circumstances, not only at the beginning, not only at the end, but all the way through the course of their exodus experience and wandering in the wilderness. What is God saying to them? I am with you. I am providing for you. And he's giving them just these enormous, beautiful, powerful pictures of his presence. Verse 5, then, to me, is a fascinating verse. Notice what it says. It says, why was it, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? Now, what's happening here? The psalmist, because it's poetic and pictorial literature, is having a dialogue with what? Inanimate things that cannot answer. Red Sea, why did you flee? Jordan River, why did you retreat? Why did you go contrary to nature? Mountains, this is the picture of the mountains of Sinai. When God came down on the mountains to give Israel his law, to demonstrate his dominion, he gave an illustration of his power, and then he gave specifics about how Israel would live in response to the power and directive of God. Okay, so you end up finding just an incredible and very beautiful picture. And I just love this thought of the psalmist saying, why, O sea, did you flee? Jordan, why did you turn back? Mountains, why did you skip? Why did you run like frightened sheep? As if someone had clapped their hands and caused you to scatter. Why did you do that? And what it does is it leaves a, it leaves a question hanging that begs for an answer. Some of the translations say it this way. They say, what ailed you, O sea, O river, O mountains? And, and, and the, the word ailed which is in, I think, in the Living Bible, the idea is you acted in a way that was unnatural. Calm waters became turbulent and parted. The wind dried the bed of the sea so the people could walk across on it. The mountains literally shook. Mountains don't do that. Mountains are pictures of great power and stability. What they did do with the presence of God, they quaked, they shook, they responded. That's the picture. So when the psalmist says, why did you respond like this what ailed you what caused you to act in a way that is completely contrary to your normal nature all right and the answer is god came in all three of the events god evidenced his power and nature responded to the power and presence of god there is in creation no thought of resistance there is only a willing submission to god's manifest presence And here's the question that starts to build up in my mind as I read through this psalm. If creation is so willingly and naturally responsive to the presence and power of God, what's wrong with me at times? Why am I resistant? When God comes near and calls and draws and speaks and, and wants and expects certain things from us, the psalmist says, hey, look, all of creation responds to the power of God. It is not reluctant. It is a willing submission to the power of God. Why don't we who have been delivered by God live in that kind of a way and then experience and enjoy the evidences and the manifestations of his power that comes in such beautiful ways? All of creation in this text is depicted as under the Lord's control. In verse 7, the psalmist, I believe, draws the conclusion of the psalm. He says... Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. Okay, now you have two choices. You can say that the psalmist is speaking to the physical globe that we live on and saying to it, shake, which it has. 
Okay, or you can say he's talking to the inhabitants of planet Earth and saying to us, Oh, tremble, O earth, tremble, O inhabitants of the earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. And then I just love what he says next. He says, that God of Jacob, who evidenced his presence amongst his people, he turned rock into a pool of water. He turned hard rock, flint, or granite into streams of water. Okay, so I have the, the bookends. I have the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. I have the Jordan River crossing into the land of promise, the finishing of the work of God. And in the middle, what do I have? I have evidence that God can do the impossible. And it is evidence that is expressed over and over and over again in the experience of Israel. Because when they were thirsty, what was threatened? Their very life. Their very existence was threatened. And what does God say to Moses? He says, Moses, take that rod, which is, it, the rod in a sense is the picture of the mediation between Moses and God. That rod <laughs> evidenced the power of God. And what does God say to Moses? He says, Moses, take that rod, go to Horeb and strike the rock. And Moses strikes the rock and what happens? Water comes out of the rock. Now folks, that's not normal. That is not natural. That is not what is expected. It is the power of God. And as the psalmist concludes this psalm about the glory and grandeur and power of God, what does he do? He points us to the regular provision of God in the Old Testament for his people that sustained and saved and spared their lives. Because that's what God can do. Okay, I think this is so beautiful. He turns rocks into pool, into pools of water, hard rock into streams of water. Now, here's the connection of the New Testament. And then we'll come back and just draw a couple principles out of this song. The connection to the New Testament is this. Okay, when Moses strikes the rock, it becomes a picture of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, here's what Paul says, reflecting back on the rock that watered the nation of Israel. Here's what Paul says. The rock that followed them was Christ. And it is Jesus who said to the woman at the well, in the midst of her strife and her, her confusion over her own sinfulness and her brokenness and her inability to get out of that lifestyle that she was caught up in of prostitution, what does Jesus say to her? I can give you living water. I can change your heart. I can do the impossible. That's what he's promising her. And he does it by later saying, I am living water. Which is to say what? Christ is the one who comes at the end of your rope, at the place of death, and he infuses you with life. Paul could say, for 40 years in the Old Testament, that rock that followed them was the presence of God, pouring life-giving water into the nation of Israel. Here's what I love about this. Where's the first time water shows up in the Bible? I mean, in terms of a river. Do you know where it is? It's in the Garden of Eden. Where God chose Adam and Eve to, to live in his presence, created them to enjoy his glorious presence, and he gave a river that ran through it to sustain its life. The rock comes on the scene in Exodus, and it is the river of living water. Paul says that rock was Christ. Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he say? He says, I am living, life-sustaining, life-changing water. And then I come to the book of Revelation chapter 22, and I am stunned by this text. 
the angel showed me, John says, a river of the water of life as clear as, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood trees of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Okay, what's the picture? The picture is that I find this continuity of life-giving water that that Israel needed desperately in the middle of the desert, and God turned hard rock into pools of water. He did what is utterly contrary to nature and provided for his people. Why these things? Why these pictures in Psalm 114? Because these pictures in Psalm 114 are pictures of the power and presence of God that is predisposed towards the care of his people. So that we will not live in fear, but so that we will go into the new year with confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to that question is everyone can be. But can they successfully overtake the power of God that is so clearly revealed in these little snippets from the history of Israel? And the answer is no. In all of those things, he's reversing the course of nature. He's doing the impossible. Mountains are shaking. Rivers are going backwards. Seas are splitting in half. Water doesn't do that. It always seeks level. Always. Unless God is there. And when God comes, the impossible begins to happen. Why is this psalm recorded? Why do you think it's there? I think it's there to demonstrate that God is in control of everything. And just in little pictures, he captures large swaths of the history of the nation of Israel and says, I did that, I did that, I did that. And then the psalmist says, O earth, tremble. Tremble in fear and awe at the power of God, but also in obedience to the call and directive of God. He'll sustain you in the path of obedience. That's the picture of this psalm. Fear the Lord and serve him with all your heart. What are the picture or what are the principles that emerge out of this psalm? I'll just share these with you real quickly. The first one that emerges is that God's posture towards us is one of power and affection. Okay, what we usually think of is we, we tend to think of power as something that is separated from affection. We think of uh, the man in the home, he's the picture of strength. And the woman is the picture of affection. When the baby's crying, who do you run to? Okay, you have a natural disposition to go towards mom because there you think you'll find affection. Okay, in this psalm, what do you find? You find God bringing Israel out of Egypt by his powerful right arm. And then what are you doing? You find him embracing Israel as a nation. Israel became his sanctuary. Israel became his dwelling place. God chose Israel, delivered them, forgave them, shepherded them, and he was their glorious deliverer who cared for them deeply, and they became his abode. I hear in this statement the echo of the words of Jesus. Matthew 28, after the mountains shook at the resurrection and Jesus appeared with his disciples, what does he say to them? He says to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel, go represent my power and my kingdom and my glory. And then what's the promise he gives them? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. God did not deliver Israel as a raw display of power and say, good luck. That's what they thought. Right? Moses, did you bring us out of here so that we would die? And Moses is like, I didn't bring you out here. God brought you out of here. And God is going to have to provide. And the affection of God to me is so 
powerful when Israel came out and, and, and Judah came out from the people of a foreign tongue. Verse 2, Judah became his dwelling place. Israel, the place where he exercised his dominion, his rightful rule. God is there. God's posture towards, one of, towards us is one of power and affection. I don't aim to embarrass my daughter this morning, but a few weeks ago, I got a call from one of my girls who lives in Ohio. So you can narrow that down to that one. She wanted to let me know that the, I think one time you called me and the battery in the car was dead, and the other time the key was inside the car. And the car was locked. And she wondered what to do about that. What I, what I felt was a strange sense of inadequacy. Because I have the capacity to help her. I mean, my mechanical skills are limited, but I, I had the capacity. I could do something. I could call someone. I could stand there with her. I could protect her. I could all the things that as a dad you would naturally want to do for your daughter in that kind of situation. After berating her for locking the key in the car. <laughs> you know what? You know what kept me from caring for my daughter. It's a real simple word, space. I couldn't get there. And what was I faced with? I was faced with something God has never been faced with. I was faced with an inability to be where she was. And I was frustrated, wanted to help her, had to say, you're going to have to work this out on your own. You know what's cool? God has never had to say that. He has never, he didn't bring Israel out and say, yeah, Red Sea is very wet and very big. And Egypt is coming and they are very mad. <clears throat> Not what he says. And they were, but he doesn't, right? What does he do? He takes his presence from the front of them, parks it behind them, and lets them look at the obstacle until they would see his power. And what happens? God says, Moses, you to demonstrate my connection with humanity, my love for you, you stretch out your hand over that sea. And when you do, that sea's going to part, and my people will cross on dry ground. God has never faced a circumstance that he was unable to resolve. And you cannot face a circumstance in your life as God's child that he is unable to resolve according to his will and plan. That should be for us so profoundly encouraging. Because circumstances can drive us crazy, can't they? I have it happen to me. I'll tell you, I'm prone to this kind of stuff. Okay, it gets, captures my attention, and God shrinks and goes out of sight. But he is still present. Even though I don't see him. Israel couldn't see God. He was standing behind them. They're looking at the Red Sea. Pure panic. And then God exercises his power. His affection and his ability come together and coalesce in a deliverance that is glorious. And we look back at it and say, that is one of the great moments in Israel's history. No, it's not. It's one of the great moments in God's work. It's a dark blot on Israel's history because they doubted God. But it is a moment in which God showed up and was glorious. His posture is one of power and affection. Remember that because we are prone to underestimate his power. And when we underestimate his power, we are also likely to underestimate his affection. And it's why we say, why? And God doesn't get angry when we say why. He moves in our direction. And he helps. And he is quite able to help. Another thought I think in principle is this. God is able to deliver from the most difficult circumstances. 
Okay, I'm going to tell you something, folks. God will let you face Red Seas and Jordan Rivers. He will. Because he wants you to see him in a way that you would never see him otherwise. Israel learned something that day about God. When they thought it was over, they were going to die. God moved in and delivered. But what's fascinating to me is that he always does it through a person. Always. He always moves, as you read through Scripture, it's the story of God using people to do his will and to have the pleasure of seeing his power and to look at him and say, you are great. That's why he does these things. Joshua 4, verse 21. I'll just read this for you because you can ask, why did God do this? Why did he reveal his face to the sea and it fled to the river, it retreated to the mountains and they shook? The result, rocks turning. Why did he do that? Joshua 4 says this, it says, he said to the Israelites in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? And these stones are what? They're the altar that was built by the Jordan River to remind Israel of what God had done. Okay, God says to Israel, okay, you're going to walk across on this dry ground now. But before you do that, Joshua, get 12 men to pick up 12 stones and pile them up, heap them up. And every time your children look at those stones, you will be reminded of the power of God and you will pass on to the next generation a reminder of the power of God. You reflect back on this. And I think by virtue of this psalm, these two events are connected. So that when Israel would reflect on the Red Sea, God didn't tell them to build a monument there. Why? Because they would not be there. The monument was to be built at the second illustration of God's power, right? At the second crossing of the water. First deliverance, second into the fulfillment of God's purposes, which is to say that God is in control and finishes what he starts. And when he's done, he builds a memorial so that when the people of Israel looked at it, they would have to say to their children, this is a reminder of what God did here and here. Notice the connection in Joshua 4. When they look at those stones and ask about it, Say, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea. Do you see the connection? That monument was a, 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 a message, if you will. It was a sermon of 12 stones that said God dried up that sea and we walked across on dry land. And also, by the way, he did that 40 years before that. Okay, to demonstrate his awesome power. Verse 24, Joshua says this. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear and obey the Lord. Folks, understand this. When you see God work in your life, let it be a weight, a heaviness that drives you to your knees that causes you to come before God and say, God, you are awesome and you are great. Let it become a psalm of praise. Let it be a time to reflect back on what he just did, but also go back further. Think back to the works of God in your life. He told Israel to build monuments so that they would remember what God had done. God uses his power for the good of his people and he uses his power amongst his people as a witness to the nations. Go back and read the book of Joshua. They said, these are the people. Remember when they got to Jericho? These are the people that God separated the Red Sea for. And these are the people that he broke up the Jordan River for. It went backwards at the presence of their God. And there was a witness to the power and strength and glory of God. What burden, what circumstance do you need to place today 
at the beginning of this new year in God's capable hands. What quandary, what unexplainable thing do you need to take and say, God, you're a lot bigger than me and you seem much more capable in light of your word. I give this to you. You see, because those things that we carry into the new year will distract us and burden us. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to put it into his capable hands. He wants us to memorialize what he has done in the past as a witness to what he can do in the future. Take the circumstance. Take the trouble. Take the sorrow. Place it into God's capable hands. And see what he can do. He is able to deliver from the most difficult of circumstances. And he is able to overcome the greatest obstacles in your life. And this, just, this, this picture of turning rocks into pools of water. I, just, I hope that this thought will etch in your mind. He turned rocks into pools of water. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, that can't happen. That doesn't happen. And he turns hard rock. I love how he does this. He steps it up. He amplifies the picture. He turns stones, limestones, into pools of water. Hit them with a hammer, what happens? They break into pieces. Hit granite with a hammer, and it's going to fly back in your face. He turns hard rock into rivers of water. Two thoughts come to my mind because sometimes we think people around us can't change, but a lot of times we're also thinking, I can't change. Right? We're fairly certain that people around us can't change. Sometimes we're assured that we can't change. Here's a promise I would give you from the book of of, of Ezekiel. This is the promise of the new covenant. God says, by the Spirit, I will remove your heart of stone, stubborn resistance. I'm going to take it out. And I'm going to put it in its place, a heart of flesh, by the Spirit. And what is that heart? That is a heart that is responsive, that is sensitive to the call of God. That's what conversion is. The heart that didn't care what God thought now cares what God thinks. But sometimes we let that heart get hardened over. You know what God? God wants to soften that heart. God wants to change your heart and use your life for his glory. And so Ezekiel, the forecast is promised. God can take a rock hard heart. And you may be thinking, boy, if God is there, I wish he would soften my heart. And I would say to you this morning, go to him and ask him to do that miracle in your life. And you will find that he will take a hard heart and he will rip it out and replace it with a heart of flesh. Because what we need first with God is a heart change. We need a heart that is sensitive to the voice that understands, that hears. And then I love to jump forward to the book of John, chapter 7. Jesus is talking with them about the change of the Spirit of God coming and living in the midst of people. And here's what he says. He says, out of your innermost being will flow what? Rivers of living water. Folks, what does he do? He takes the heart of stone. He removes it. He shatters it. He replaces it with the heart of flesh. And Jesus says, out of that heart will flow life-giving water. And what happens? The person who's a bummer becomes a blessing. God changes you. And he causes out of your life to flow this sense of abundance. Jesus said on the last and greatest day of the feast in John 7, he stood and said with a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, streams of living water will flow from him. By this, John then says, he meant the spirit. So the picture is this. In the Old Testament, the the river that flowed from a broken rock was a picture of the presence and blessing of God and a picture of Christ, the ultimate visible blessing of God. And then who are we? Folks, do you understand this? 
out of you will flow rivers of living water, which means you have become what? You have become the presence of Christ to the world around you. And you are to pour out the blessing of God on the world around you. Most of us, we, 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 we stifle the work of the Spirit in our lives by our doubt and fear and by our quandaries and questions. Folks, listen, I don't understand this, but he turned rocks into pools of water. From hard rock, he brought a stream of water. Okay, I don't understand that. I cannot explain that to you. Nor can I explain the change that God brings in someone's heart. But when it happens, you know it happened. You know. It is a demonstration of the power and glory of God. I love the way the Proverbs can talk about this. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers, he turns it wherever he wants to. That's why I get, I'll be honest with you, I get tired of people panicking over politics. I get tired of people panicking over the president. Pray about it. Don't panic. Because when you panic, you belittle God. He can turn hard rock into streams of water. I don't understand that. But he, he can do that. He can do that. He can change your posture towards your mate in a way that you don't think he can. He can give you the gift of faith where there is no faith. Where you might honestly say, Pastor Tim, I have serious doubts. I don't buy it yet. I don't understand it yet. He can turn hard rock into pools of water. And that's not explainable scientifically. That's God. I just want to conclude this by saying this. Because I think this is implied in all that happens in this text. God's power comes in response to simple acts of surrender, obedience, and faith. That's what's happening all through this. Okay, just start at the beginning of the text. He brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay, this does not make sense to me because you have all the slaves being led out, not through a, a revolution, a military revolt, but a man just walks in and says, I want those people to go with me. And what happens? After a period of events at the hand of a willing man, what happens? God leads Israel out, and it is a miracle. It's inexplicable from a human perspective. But it happened. They get to the Red Sea. God could have just split the Red Sea, folks. He made it. But he didn't. What did he say? He said, Moses, you go stand there. Because I want to raise you in the, in, in the eyes of the people. I want to give people esteem for you as my representative. And Moses goes and out of obedience, he sticks out his hand. And I just, I would love to see the look on his face. You know, you see it in the movie. You see the picture of the sea parting and that's the glory. I think the glory would be to see the look on Moses' face. He's holding out that rod thinking, this is crazy. Why am I? I look like a spectacle. I look stupid. This doesn't make sense. And what happens? God works a miracle. Why? Because a man was willing to stand in the gap and do the work that God had called him to do. Trusting in the power of God. When you get to the Jordan River, what does God say? God says to Joshua, he says, okay, here's my strategy for splitting the Jordan River. He doesn't tell him to go upstream and block it and divert it. He says, tell the priest, to step into the water. Which is manifesting what? Well, what did the priests do? They mediated the presence of God to the people of God in the Old Testament. And when the presence of God mediated through the priest, who in simple faith stepped into the river, and you can imagine what they're thinking. There's a lot of deep water in front of us, and we're probably going to die. But what does Joshua say? Joshua says, just step in. And when they step in, what happens? 
God causes the river to retreat, to pile up. Not because the priest had $180 Nike shoes, Air Jordans, power. No, because, because they manifested as they carried the, the, the tabernacle, the presence of God. That ark symbolized God was there. And they stepped into the water and it parted. Individuals stepping out in obedience to the purpose and call of God. Moses striking the rock. Moses is thinking, this is really stupid. God says, oh, no, no, you go touch that rock and I'm going to bring water out of it. And Moses is thinking, are you, are you messing with me? Are you kidding me? And what does Moses do? He goes and he strikes the rock and he has to jump back. Because out of it is coming a river of life-sustaining water. How did God do it? God did it through the obedience of a faithful servant. Who was, and I love this part, who was prone to doubt. Who was prone to fear. Who was prone to think, who am I? But was brought to a place where God said to him, Moses, you're the man. I reject your excuses. And what does Moses finally say? Moses says, okay, then I'll make a deal with you. He says, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you're not going with me, I'm not going. And what happens? All of the miracles that are recorded in this psalm are seen by a man who didn't want to go. And I, I guess that at the end of his life, Moses is thinking, boy, I'm glad that God knows how to twist the arm and get it way up the back till we finally say, yes. That's the grace of God. And you know what he does? He will demonstrate his power in the life of surrendered, obedient, faithful and he is able to overcome whatever obstacles, whatever fears, whatever bad habits, and whatever's in your life. He's able. At the point of surrender, he works. He works. Father, as we go into this new year,